Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. You'll find the notes in the insert in the bulletin. Ephesians chapter 6. And this morning we're going to look at one verse. And we're going to complete our series on biblical parenting. Let's begin by reading our, our passage this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, when we began our series, we looked at the first fundamental issue of why is this so important, and we talked about the significance of, of parenting and doing it rightly, that God has entrusted into our care beings who will never not be. They have a, they have a date of creation, but they, from that point on, are eternal. They will never not be, and they are image bearers of God. And, and how we steward that responsibility is of tremendous importance. And, and it's not simply important for those with young children in the home, but it's important for all of us because we are the household of God. And in the church, we all become mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters. As Jesus promised that those who forsake them in this life will in this life receive tenfold and in the life to come eternal life. Not only that, but these relationships between parent and child, child and parent, are images and metaphors that God uses for his own relationship within the Trinity between the Father and the Son, and in salvation as he adopts us into his family, and he, he acts to us as a father. And so how we understand those relationships, what we understand those core dynamics to be, will understand our relationship to God, intra-Trinitarian relationships, and as we be our God's own family and household, our relationships in the church. And then we looked at the parents' fundamental responsibility. What is it that God requires of parents fundamentally? What's the, the big task? And it's discipleship. It's training. It's teaching them God's commandments. We looked at Deuteronomy 6 and how the parents are, when they rise, when they sit, when they walk along the way, when they lay down, these words, these commandments are to be on their tongue. They're to teach them and speak of them. We talked about formulating a worldview. And then last week we looked at, well, what is the child's fundamental commandment? There is one. The first of the horizontal commandments in the Ten Commandments, the fifth commandment, the only commandment with a promise, the only commandment given in the New Testament to children directly, to honor and obey their parents. We've got so many hopes, so many goals for our children, but this is the fundamental command that God has given. This is the fundamental thing that God requires of them, and we can train them to do many other things, but we dare not neglect training them in this first primary thing. We talked about how learning to submit, learning to honor earthly parents is, is a preparatory step to learning to honor their heavenly father. Well, that would be wonderful then if, if parents would simply teach and children would simply honor and obey. But for those of us who've had children, we know better. We know that we live in a sinful world. And so this morning, we're going to look at the means, the methods of discipleship and instruction, and specifically how to deal with the, the obstinacy, the rebellion. Last week, we saw the priority that God in the law of Moses in at least five different texts, commanded that children who grew up ultimately rebellious, 
who would curse their mother and father, who would strike them, were to be put to death. And we, we know that we're not under that requirement, that law. We know that God is not calling us to do that. But we do, from that, learn the priority, the, the importance. You can only imagine with what urgency, with what zeal, with what terror parents would undertake this task. So how, how do you raise children? Especially, how do you deal with sin? How do, you, how do you deal with rebellion? How do you deal with the foolishness that's bound up in the heart of a child? This morning, Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 4, gives us that answer. We're to look at it in three parts. The, the outline literally just follows the text. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Point one, do not provoke your children to anger. Point two, bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Point three, bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. And we're going to dive in looking at this as sort of an overview for parents and of how to raise your children, the methods of doing these things, the tools that God has given. And Paul addresses this fundamentally to fathers, but we've seen in other passages like Deuteronomy 6, and we'll see in passages today that this, these responsibilities are given to both father and mother, husband and wife. Paul is assuming that the father is taking the leadership the father is, is spearheading these things. So even though this is addressed to fathers, mothers, this is a word for you as well. But fathers, God is calling on you to, to take the leadership here, to set the tone, to, to not defer these responsibilities to your wife, but to understand that God will hold you accountable for these things, first and foremost. So first, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke your children to anger. And what's helpful in this passage is, as is common in the New Testament and in Scripture, what we get is a not this, but this. Don't do this thing, do this other thing instead. And by that contrasting relationship, we learn not just about the thing we're not to do and not just about the thing that we are to do, but their relationship together. So a little later in Ephesians, or a little earlier in Ephesians, do not lie, but speak the truth to one another. Um, in fact, earlier yet in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells the Christians, if you look there, in verse 21, assuming that you've heard of him, you were taught in him as the truth is in him, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, so that the pattern for spiritual growth is putting off wrong practices, being renewed in your mind, and putting on new practices. And so we're looking, as we read through Paul especially, for this put-off, put-on dynamic, not this, but this. That's exactly what we have here. And so when we ask the question, what does it mean to provoke your children to anger? I'm going to suggest point A, the most obvious thing, is by not doing the put-on. These are related to each other. Don't provoke them to anger, but raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So point A, don't provoke your children to anger by neglecting discipline and instruction. Now that may seem counterintuitive. In fact, I frequently will hear from parents and from the culture at large that the very thing they are afraid will provoke their children to anger is discipline and instruction. And yet, that can't be the case here. Paul's saying, don't do this one thing, do this other. They're antithetical. Let me give you one example from 1 Kings. If you remember, when David is old 
And nearly on his deathbed, the the question of who would become the king after him was raised. And even though the Lord had promised the kingship to Solomon and David had as well, Solomon had a brother, Adonijah. And Adonijah entered into his mind to attempt to make a a run for the throne himself. And in 1 Kings chapter 1, Adonijah, at the risk of starting a civil war, decided to pursue his plan and it says this in 1 Kings chapter 5 through 6. Now, Adonijah, the son of Hadith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And then we get this wonderful little parenting insight from 1 Kings. I love it when the narrator throws these things in. What, what could be the cause for this type of rebellion? A man who is about to risk civil war, defying the wishes of his father, grabbing armed men, making a, making a potentially a coup attempt to take the throne. And listen to what the narrator says in verse 6. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? The narrator of Kings is explaining Adonijah's behavior. Why would this man be so rebellious, so bold, so brazen? It was a lack of discipline and instruction. David, for all of his, his positive characteristics, from what we can see of his children, was a poor, poor father. And here, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? In Deuteronomy 21.18, we saw this last week, we're looking at the case, and I even mentioned earlier that in Israel the law was clear. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father and his mother, and though they discipline, will not listen to them. And what's the implication? Discipline and instruction is the very thing the text assumes will in most cases stop the rebellion, the anger. In fact, Deuteronomy 21.18 is dealing with the exceptional case. Though they discipline him, he will not listen. Then you bring him before the community. We can can provoke our children to anger by neglecting discipline. We can provoke our children to anger by neglecting instruction. We looked at earlier also Judges chapter 2.10. And if you have studied the book of Judges, you know it is a story and a testimony of chaos The echoing refrain of the book of Judges is in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in the sight of his own eyes. What could possibly set up that scenario where everyone just runs around doing what's right in their own eyes or to use modern vernacular, following their heart or their own truth? Yes, there is nothing new under the sun. What would possibly set up that scenario? Judges chapter 2, verse 10, In those days there arose after them another generation who did not know the Lord or the work He had done for Israel. The Israelite parents within a generation or two stopped telling their children what God had done. The parting of the Red Sea, the, the, the quaking mountain at Sinai, the hail, the sun standing still, the walls of Jericho falling down, the Jordan parting. They didn't tell them And that lack of knowledge and fear of God is meant by the narrator of Judges to explain to us how we get to the chaos that ensues. We provoke our children to anger, provoke them to rebellion by not doing the responsibility God has called us to do, by letting them raise themselves. Proverbs 19.18 says this, Discipline their son, for there is hope. 
Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Proverbs 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame. Now, sadly, we live in a culture that thinks the best thing we do to kids is be hands-off. They're naturally good, and we really just mess things up. That is not the biblical testimony. The biblical testimony is leave a child alone, let them do what they want, give them what they want, let them have their way. It will ruin them. It will ruin them. So we provoke our children to anger by neglecting discipline and instruction, neglecting discipline and instruction. Rather than creating conflict, Proverbs 29.17 says, Discipline your son. He will give you rest, peace. So we got to resist the urge to, to settle. And here's the temptation, to settle for some immediate peace right here, right now, this minute. And so a field of long-term conflict and strife. Secondly, how do you provoke your children to anger? By inconsistent discipline and instruction. I think this is the real challenge inconsistent discipline and instruction. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. This is the real challenge. I think it's very provoking for children to live with an ever-changing standard where one day they disobey, nothing happens. Another day they disobey, they get yelled at. Another day they disobey, and, and the parent loses their temper and lashes out, and you never know what the rules you're playing by. That's a very provoking way to live. And one of the greatest challenges for parents is consistency that your children would know. Because again, you're modeling God's character. God has a law. It doesn't change, does it? Whatever the law, the rules in your household, it's helpful. And and I have experienced this myself, that the children understand this intuitively, that there's an order, that certain offenses demand certain responses. And and I'd encourage you to think through this, talk through this, the husband and wife, so that there is a pattern to what you do. In my household, you, you pull the child aside and you establish what actually happened. That gives the child an opportunity to to express any extenuating circumstances or any misunderstanding there might be. God does this, in fact. Remember when he's about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and he allows Abraham to, 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 to enter into that and ask questions. You, then you get the child, at least this is my pattern, to acknowledge what they've done so they own up to it. And you discuss what the consequence, what the discipline will be. And then you administer that. Then afterwards there's restoration, there's forgiveness. This is a pattern it then becomes familiar and understanding, and, and you press through it. But if you're, if you're erratic in what you're doing, you're going to provoke them to wrath. That is a terrible way to live. A terrible way to live. Inconsistent discipline and instruction is, is a provocation. Point C, inappropriate discipline and instruction. Inappropriate discipline and instruction. Listen to Psalm 103, verses 13 to 14. As a father shows compassion on his children... So the comparison is God acts like a father acts. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why? For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. What's the point? God takes into consideration our frame, where we're at, as he considers how to interact with us. And godly and wise parents are doing the same thing. You're considering where your children are at, both in regards to discipline and instruction. It would be very provoking for me to require my 16-month-old to unload the dishwasher. She would surely fail. 
wouldn't. I mean, that'd be an unreasonable requirement. Now, I can require that of my seven-year-old. He's able to do that. But if I simply say, well, that's the rules. All the kids need to do this. That's unrealistic. I'm not considering the frame of my 14-month-year-old. And, and this is where, again, we need to look for wisdom. That God encourages us as shepherds to study our children, to study their frame, to study where they're at intellectually, to study where they're at spiritually, and to measure out our instruction, to measure out the discipline appropriately. This is going to guard us from, from the sins of abuse or neglect. Jesus is described this way in Matthew 12, 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus, dealing with us, knows when he's dealing with someone who's about to break. And instead of crushing them, he nurtures that. Or John 16, 12, Jesus to his disciples, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. And oftentimes that's required in parenting as well. This is not a time where they can, they've heard enough. They can't hear anymore. And so you're constantly trying to tailor what you're saying, what you're doing, what you're requiring, what you're modeling to your children. You're, you're making it appropriate for where they are, appropriate for what they've done, appropriate for where they're at mentally and spiritually. So inappropriate discipline and instruction can be a provocation to anger. And, and finally, point D, you can provoke your children to anger by unrighteous discipline and instruction. And we were talking about this in the ABF last week, but one of the most important things to understand as parents is it's not about you. It's about the living God. Your children are not called to honor and obey you because you are honorable and worthy of obedience. You are not. I am not. It is because there's a living God to whom all honor and obedience is due, and he has declared in his wisdom that children are to obey their parents. Do your children understand that? That yes, you're frail, yes, you're fallible, yes, you're sinful, but there's a living God and He requires this. Or do we convey to our children, it's about me? You won't embarrass me. You won't get in my way. This gets back to sort of the inconsistent discipline. Usually, when we're being inconsistent, we're being lazy. We're, we're not shepherding. You want to do something, there's a TV program you want to watch, a game you want to watch, something you want to do, and you put off dealing with, with the child until finally they push you too far. And now, not righteously, but in anger, you go and deal with them. Well, James 1.20 makes very clear that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And what you're training the child is you can get away with what you want till you really tick off mom or dad. Conversely, James chapter 4, verses 1-3 through three warns us that what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You have not because you ask not. You ask but do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The point is this. Are we God worshipers in our parenting or are we idolaters? We looked at this in the previous weeks. What are our goals? Are you concerned with raising godly children or successful children? Is your number one parenting goal that your child will get into a good school, will perform well on the athletic field, will be socially developed? Those are unrighteous goals. So unrighteous discipline and instruction, either due to our own anger coming in, making it about ourselves, or where we're trying to form and shape them is not according to God's standard. All of that is a provocation as well. 
Um, I, I grew up in a home where my father was intense that I was going to follow after his footsteps in certain ways with sports and things. And, and I remember I was actually in, interested in art. And I remember for my 13th birthday, after sowing all these hints and all these hints that I wanted to get some art tools, he got me a set of weights. I did not take that well. And it, that was my sin. That was my sin, but... but but uh, we need to consider the frame of our children. We need to consider the frame of our children, and we need to be disciplining and instructing them in righteousness, not in anger, and not for our own selfish goals and ends, but according to God's. I really think that's biblically what provoking anger is. You can't make it be what he says to do in its place. You can't know what provoking anger means disciplining. No, it doesn't. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, don't do this, do this. And it doesn't mean not instructing them. The, the temptation that we have to say, no, 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 if I, if I hold them on the line on this, if I, if I call them to account, if I, if I address their rebellion, that'll only make them rebel more, is, is a lie the world sells you. Last week I talked about how um, my father-in-law's first church had adopted that belief. They just assumed the children would rebel, and their goal is we're just going to give them what they want in the hopes that they don't really rebel, and then eventually they'll calm down in their early 20s. That is not God's wisdom. That's the wisdom from below, the wisdom from the earth, the wisdom from hell. David's son rebelled precisely because his father had never called him to account for the things he had done. Okay, so that's what not to do. What then are we to do? Bring them up, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, and we're going to look at those two points one by one. First, bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord. And we've got to start with an assumption here that Paul brings to this passage. But in our current culture, we cannot assume, and that is point A, that children are born sinful at heart. I think most of our modern confusion over parenting and the culture is because our culture insists, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Remember, we have just come through the bloodiest century in human history. The century that created the, the Cambodian killing fields, the, the Holocaust, Auschwitz, mechanized death. And yet the one lesson we've learned as a culture from all of this is, is, is that people are basically good and that ethics are not absolute. And if we're convinced of anything, it's that children are born good. And if not good, then at the worst, neutral, as a blank slate, sort of as Rousseau would say. That is not the biblical testimony. And if your starting point in understanding what children are as they come into this world is askew, then everything else will be warped from there. Listen to the testimony of Psalm 51, verse 5. This is David. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or Proverbs 22:15, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now, when the Bible talks about folly, it's not just talking about tomfoolery. The biblical fool is the one who first and foremost has no fear of God before his eyes, who according to Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So foolishness is a moral category, a gravely moral category. And this foolishness, according to Scripture, is, is, comes into this world in the hearts of children. And again, parents, you understand this. No one had to teach my child, any of them, 
We're four for four now. No one had to teach any of my children to look and see if mommy or daddy were watching before they touched the thing they shouldn't touch. They figured that out all by themselves, right? No one had to teach my child, any of them, to get angry and swat at a sibling for taking a toy they wanted. They just figured that one out all by themselves. Yes, they're very fast learners. And, and I love my children, and it's wonderful that God made them cute, but they're born sinful. They come into this world sinful, and you know this. Paul Washer makes this illustration, which I think is, is dead on. He says, you look at a child in your arms, and you've seen a child reach for something, a necklace or a wristwatch, and you say no, and you move their hand away, and then they reach for it again. You say no, and you push their hand away, and eventually it clicks that you don't want them to touch it, and they start to cry, and they get angry, and then they even sort of swat at you. And Paul Washer says, and I, I think he's exactly right, that if that child at that moment possessed the faculties, the abilities, and the resources of a grown man, they would slay you where you stand for that watch. Now, they might regret it moments later, but make no mistake. But we laugh at it because of how impotent and futile they are. Oh, isn't that cute? But, but absolutely. When my child doesn't want to go in its crib, I see anger. <laughs> They're born sinful. They're born sinful. And consequently, what we have to do to address this is not simply educate them and not simply change their environment. But we have to deal with sin in the heart, which is where it's located, which leads to the second point, point B. And this is probably the, the most counterintuitive or the most difficult for us to believe, especially given the state of the wisdom of the age, and that is that physical discipline, according to Scripture, has a spiritual effect. Physical discipline has a spiritual effect. See, we're tempted to think that all of that forms and, and, and parenting that's gone through the ages. Now, for most of human history, these were things that were assumed is all, we're smarter than that now. We're wiser than that now. We've advanced beyond that now. And the notion that doing something in our minds is as old-fashioned, as clumsy, as, frankly, distasteful as, as disciplining children in any sort of physical sense, that that could have a spiritual effect is hard for us to believe, but the testimony of Scripture is unmistakable. I'm going to just listen to these passages, and you can decide whether you want to disagree with God or not, but listen to these passages and the promises the Scripture attaches to physical discipline. Proverbs 20, um, 6, 7. Like a lame man's leg, which hangs useless, is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. I mean, you've got to start there. Because the biblical assumption is this. When you're dealing with that rank foolishness, that no, I won't, when you're dealing with that, there is no reasoning with that. There is no reasoning with that type of foolishness, with that type of rebellion. And if your assumption is, I'm just going to reason with my child when they rebel, you will fail. Like a lame man's leg, which hangs useless, is a proverb from the mouth of fools. Rather, Proverbs 20, verse 30. Listen to this. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. Now, undeniably, there's a connection there between the administering of physical discipline and inward cleansing. Or go further. Proverbs 23, 13 to 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. 
We can, we can, we can wince at that because of how culturally out of focus that is. And, and I want to pause and say I'm by no means trying to um, lay out any one particular method of administering discipline. Um, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of latitude there. My goal is not to say, okay, here's how you, but rather to, to get our head wrapped around the principle that this is what God has given His church. This is what God has given His people as a fundamental tool in parenting. It's not the only tool. But it is the only tool with these promises attached. It really is understood and assumed to be the mainstay, the bread and butter, the meat and potatoes of dealing with sin in the home. Yes, additionally, there can be a natural consequences. Yes, there can be other forms as well. But this is understood biblically to be center, foundational, normal. Let me keep going. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And then the author of Hebrews quotes Proverbs 3, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. We may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I submit to you, any honest reading of the Bible, the Bible claims spiritual results from discipline. And we can come up with our other strategies, we can come up with our other methods, but none of them will have these promises. None of them will have these promises. The Bible makes other claims, point C, not only does it have this spiritual effect, but biblical discipline. And by biblical, what I mean is what we've already looked at. Not angry, consistent, considering the frame of the child, holy age appropriate, holy appropriate for where they are, measured with restoration. Biblical discipline is loving. It is loving. Listen to Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? It's loving. Now, the reason i got to emphasize that point is we're tempted to think the exact opposite. The reason why I can't discipline my children is I just love them so much. No, you don't. No, you don't. In fact, we've got to make it a bit stronger, the sub-point there, to neglect discipline, according to this proverb, is to hate your child. That's what it says. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son. Now, let, me, let me unpack that for you, because you, you can immediately think, no, no, that can't possibly be true. Hatred is not, first and foremost, the desire for harm to come to somebody. We think of hatred as anger and fury and I want to get them. That's murder and wrath in the Bible. Hatred is probably best pictured when Jesus asked the question with answered, asked the question and answered, well, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And he told the story of the Good Samaritan. 
What did the man who loved do? He stopped what he was doing and he got down and he helped the man on the side of the road. What did the two people who by implication hated him do? They just walked on by. They couldn't be bothered. You know, that might take up most of my afternoon and I got plans. I might get some dirt on me. You know what? I can't be bothered. That's hatred. And, and the temptation for us when our children are sinning, when our children are being rebellious, is this, I was doing something. I was watching something. I had plans to do something. And will we love our children? Or will we say, it's just not worth it? And then, because we'll come up with excuses. We won't just say that. We'll say, you know, I, I, I love them too much to do anything. And God says, no, that's a lie. And again, we, the challenge for us, we can, we can submit our thinking to God's word, or we can deceive ourselves and think we know better than God. Biblical discipline is loving. It's loving. Proverbs 3, 11 to 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Love, delight, are attached with discipline done rightly for the right reasons in the right way. Next, biblical discipline is godly. Biblical discipline is godly. What I mean by that is this. It reflects the character of God. We've already seen passages where God says, I'm a father, and here's what I do with my kids. And I submit to you, the best way you can be a God-honoring mother and father is to model your parenting after God's. We talked even last week and the week before about how as a parent, you are your first um, your child's first exposure to an immediate authority. You become, in some sense, their God representative. And what they understand it to mean that you are a father, that you are a parent, will be the categories that they bring to the table when they read and learn that God has said, I'll be a father to you. And, and their prior experience they'll bring to the table. Now, for some people who've had harsh parents, abusive parents, who've been sinned against in that way, they come to God's a father. I'm not sure I want that. But for others... Parents who looked the other way, for parents who neglected these things, it might explain why so much of our culture takes a very lackadaisical attitude to God. Oh, God won't mind. He'll get over it. It'll be okay. These are, these are difficult things, but you can model the character of God to your children, or you can choose to model something else. To neglect discipline is to contradict God's character and to confuse your children about who he is. They'll learn one thing from you, and then they'll come to the Bible, and they'll have to get sorted out. And I, and I talk to people who, who bring these wrong assumptions from their own experiences. Your parenting will either reflect and model God's parenting, or it will contradict it. Listen to 2 Samuel 7, 14-15. This is the Davidic covenant, where God makes a covenant with David and his household specifically to Solomon and ultimately to the Messiah who would come. I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Or Revelation 3.19, the living Christ says this as he brings a rebuke to the church. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. 
Now, it's only awfully confusing and challenging for someone to come to these passages as a new believer if everything they're experiencing in the home contradicted that or twisted that into something it didn't mean. Conversely, we can prepare our children to meet the living God who identifies himself as a father by rightly modeling these things. So when God says these things, we understand them as good and as right and of course and natural. Bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Finally, bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. Now, both of these are important because discipline without instruction is meaningless. If your child misbehaves and you discipline them, but you don't tell them why, and you don't counsel them, you're not, you're not really helping much. And in fact, that's a recipe for provocation. And I know we looked two weeks ago at the overarching task of instruction. I want to look at the slightly narrower task of instruction as it relates to discipline. The instruction that comes in alongside of correction and rebuke. And so as we are dealing with correcting the sin, the foolishness, the rebellion in our children, we're instructing them. With what goal? First, to understand their own hearts. To understand their own hearts. Proverbs, 20, Proverbs 4, 23 is really foundational in my thinking. And this, is, this is foundational in Jesus' understanding of people. It says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And the picture is this. Within every one of us is a heart, and the heart's immaterial. We're not talking about the organ-pumping blood, but the inner spiritual being. And if the inner spiritual being is something pictured like a source, a spring, and all the issues of life flow from it. And Jesus tells us that of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the source of all of our actions and the source of all of our thoughts and all of our words are our hearts. And whenever you're dealing with misbehavior, sin, rebellion in our children, we have an opportunity to point them back to their heart so they can understand that the problem isn't fundamentally what they did, but the problem is fundamentally who they are, who I am. You know, one of, one of the proverbs that I use in my household regularly has become a just become a, a common phrase, is, is Proverbs 25, 28. Now, I'm, I learned it in the New American Standard. I'll quote it to you that way. Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his own spirit. And the picture is that in, in, in that day and age, walls are your protection. And so any roving band of brigands, of highwaymen, could take over a city, set up camp, rule it if it didn't have any walls. Here's this picture of a person whose heart has no protection. And so any, any desire, any passion, any I want takes up shop and they're powerless to resist it. And so from an early age, we're, we're instructing our children, control your spirit, guard your heart. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that God's word will be very helpful in that. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul, and of spirit, and of joints, and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We want to move beyond simply what you did was wrong, what you did was bad, and here's what's going to happen, to point them back to their heart. So that when, when one child is quarreling with another child over a toy they want, you, you pull them aside, and part of what you say to them is this, you read James 4, 1 through 4. What causes quarrels? What causes conflicts among you? Your desires that wage war within you, you want and you cannot have, so you fight. And you say to your child, what was going on there? Well, 
I wanted the toy that he had. Okay, you wanted the toy, and you were willing to fight and lash out and hit your sibling because you wanted it. You were acting like that toy was more important than your brother. Is that toy more important than your brother? No. You see the problem? Your heart was telling you in that moment that it was more valuable, it was more important, it was more precious to have that toy than to love your brother or sister. And you do that repeatedly, and they start to understand, wow, my heart can't always be trusted. Wow, my heart doesn't always speak the truth. You can't say that too much in a culture that tells you over and over to follow your heart. Can you? Or when they say something awful, I hate you. You remind them of Luke 6, 45, when they say, oh, I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Yes, I'm sure now that you've said that you regret it, but Jesus says that the words that come out of your mouth actually start in your heart. And that that word of I hate you found something in your heart that it came out of. You're pointing them back to their heart. You're pointing them back to why they do what they do. Helping them understand biblically. Because what you want them to understand, this moves on to the next point, you want them to recognize their need of grace and forgiveness. You're not mounting this up just to make them feel bad. You're not just trying to mount this up so they feel really terrible. I mean, we can do that, can't we? We can say, I wonder what Jesus thinks of you when you act like that. Right? We can do that. We can use God like a sledgehammer. I don't recommend that. We can use it not in a real way, but sort of beat people over the head with it. But we want them to understand the problem is something deep within. And it's something we all share as well. I can talk to my kids. You know, daddy struggles with that too. Children are just far more overt and honest, aren't they? I mean, all the things my kids do, I'm thinking on the inside. I'm just smart enough to know that if I said that, you'd all hate me. So I don't. <laughs> kids, they, don't, they haven't figured that one out yet, right? And so they just say it. I want them to recognize the need of grace and forgiveness. The Apostle Paul wrote a strong, stinging rebuke to the church at Corinth. We call that Paul's harsh letter, somewhere between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And he makes mention of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And he says this, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Now there's that tension. Paul's saying, I'm no sadist. I take no joy in making you feel bad. And there's a sense in which it's right. I, I don't enjoy disciplining my children in that sense. I take no pleasure from that. But Paul goes on to say, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So every time we're correcting our children, we're disciplining our children, we're instructing our children, there's an opportunity to show them they need forgiveness, they need grace. You know, one of the the most famous Proverbs, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. One of the things I'll frequently plead with my children when there's some form of discipline, especially when it's sort of an enduring consequence. In our household, I will not, I will not unleash my children upon the Awana workers if they don't take a nap. That just would not be loving on my part. And so if the children don't nap, there'll be some immediate discipline and consequences, but I, I'm not going to unleash. And so there's tears and there's gnashing of teeth and there's sorrow when the other kids pack up to go to Awana and the child who refused to take a nap does not. And I'll 
frequently talk to them and say, look, they've memorized Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What's the rest of that? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is, this is instruction, and I know it stings a little. I know it's unpleasant. All discipline is unpleasant in the moment, but later it yields a harvest of righteousness. You, you've got a choice here. You can harden your heart, stiffen your neck, get angry, get frustrated, and be a fool. It will ultimately lead you to the path of fools who says there is no God, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Or you can say, I'm going to learn from this. It's not pleasant, I don't like it, but you can receive it as a good thing. You can receive it as good for you and learn from it and be shaped and trained by it. Now, please don't be a fool. Be wise. Fear God. You appeal to them. Not to harden themselves under discipline and correction, but to be molded by it. Proverbs 12.1 says this, whoever loves, knowledge, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Don't be stupid. So you can say that biblically. Don't be stupid. If you're meaning, Proverbs 12.1, don't hate reproof. Don't hate it. Embrace it. Understand this is good. This is, this is a principle God's brought into your life for good, to shape you, to train you, to teach you. Proverbs chapter 15, verses 10 through 10 and 12. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. These are lifelong principles. And I've met people, grown adults, you can't correct them. You can't tell them they're wrong. Somewhere in their formative years, they became these fools who are wise in their own eyes, who do not fear the Lord and despise wisdom and instruction. And you're pleading their children, don't do that. Don't do that. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. And ultimately, this law and this dealing with sin and transgression is preparing them for the gospel, isn't it? I mean, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. How? Because what you're showing your child is, and this is the danger of making a standard they can keep. If you, if you give them a standard they can keep, if you lower the expectations from what God says to something they can keep, you'll raise a Pharisee. I can keep the law. I can be a good little boy. I can be a good little girl. No. The purpose of the law is to show us I am hopelessly flawed. Deep within me, there is a fountain that defiles me, that keeps springing up. And I have a heart that keeps telling me to do wrong things. You'll cry out like one of my children did a year or two back. It almost brought tears to my eyes. Daddy, I need a new heart. My heart's bad. And you can take them to God's word. Point C, and you can point them to come to trust in Jesus Christ. Because if you come to understand the problem is you and the problem is your heart, then praise God there are passages like Psalm 51 where David, after confessing being conceived in sin and iniquity, says, Oh Lord, create me a clean heart. This is probably the most frequent prayer I have with my children. You want me to pray with you? Yeah, God, would you please work in, change, mold the heart of my child? You put the fear of you in their heart. Give them a new heart. Give them life. 
And, and this is the progression of thought, because as they understand their heart, they understand the problem. And as they understand the problem, they understand their need of grace and forgiveness. And then, praise God, there is grace and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Now, take, remember the metaphors and the language of the, of the Proverbs to children and discipline and instruction, and listen as Isaiah 53 echoes them. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The children have learned, my children have learned, that, that doing wrong, sin, brings in demands, discipline. And you can point them to the wonder of wonders because in our home, the discipline we deal out, the instruction we deal out makes one right with mommy or daddy, but there's a greater father in heaven to whom you must account. And I, and I can't remove your transgression from him. But there's one who has. There's one who took our stripes and our suffering on the cross, he bore our sins. Peter picking this up in First Peter chapter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he bore himself our sins in his body on the tree. We might die to sin and live to unrighteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And you can tell your kids, you know, God doesn't need to discipline you if you'll trust in his son. God calls on mommy and daddy to instruct and teach and shepherd and at times discipline you. But, but all of that is to picture the discipline that you're storing up for yourself before God. And you have two choices. You can stand before God and he will meter out his discipline and his wrath and his punishment to you and you will spend all of eternity drinking down that awful cup, and you will never get to the bottom of it. Or you can receive God's substitute, the one who took your discipline upon himself on the cross, God pouring out your punishment on Jesus so that you can be forgiven. All of that being prepared and set up through these things. Conversely, if your kids get away with everything, that, that intuitive connection between doing wrong brings judgment isn't going to make any sense, is it? Why can't God just do what you did and look the other way? Why can't he just count to ten? I'll obey by the time he gets to seven. You see the damage we can do. Whereas every time you're dealing and correcting your children is a gospel opportunity to show them their need of grace, to show them what's going on in their heart, and to point them to Christ. I'm going to call the worship team up as we look at our last point quickly. If you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. Finally, for those of us who have children making professions of faith, as we continue to shepherd, instruct, and discipline them, we have the opportunity to point them to continue to grow in God's grace and wisdom. I'm just going to read Proverbs chapter 2 through 3 verse 8. And just listen to the appeals and the connection with the fear of the Lord that the, the psalmist gives to his son. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, 
making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the way of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men who have paths who are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the foreign forbidden woman from the adulteress and her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Notice what he's just said. If you, if you fear God and if you call out for wisdom, it'll guard you, it'll protect you. It'll protect you from bad company. It will protect you from sexual sin. My son, do not forget my teaching. Oh, actually, sorry. Proverbs 2.20. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the path of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. My son, do not forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Who doesn't want that for their children? So you will find favor and Good. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own sight. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. That's the pattern. That's the pattern that God has laid out. A call, a constant call to wisdom, a constant call. Don't be a fool. Receive this instruction. Receive this correction. Learn, grow, cry out for wisdom. It'll guard you. It'll bless you. It'll give you an abundant life. And every day as parents, we have the opportunity to repeat and echo that call. It's my prayer that the Lord will give us the grace to do that. Please stand as we prepare to sing.